Hello once again, and welcome to episode two of Gastro News. My name is Stephen. I'm a doctor and teaching fellow based at East Surrey Hospital, and it has been my pleasure in recording each of the episodes for this series, allowing us all to spend a little time in the company of some of the most engaging and insightful gastro specialists in the UK. On this second episode in the series, we're looking at the topic of how to assess nutrition, a huge multifaceted area of day-to-day gastroenterology practice on the wards, and an area too large for me to tackle by myself, which makes me very thankful that today we have the expert guidance of Dr. Jiva Mrelier, who is a consultant gastroenterologist and member of the nutrition team at Brighton and Sussex University Hospitals just the person for us to learn about this topic from. During our conversation, we touch on areas such as refeeding syndrome, artificial nutritional support, nutrition in people with chronic liver disease or high output stomas, and lots, lots more. So stay tuned for all of that. But I started out our conversation by asking Dr. Morellier to help all of us listening to this podcast by explaining how she assesses someone's nutritional status as a gastroenterologist. I think it's probably best to start from the top, isn't it? And I think lots of the times when we do assess patients' nutritional status, let's say if we focus on the inpatient ones, you will have the nurses doing a must screening uh, regularly as per you know guidance, and you'll get a someone's must screen. And if they actually score high, then obviously they will be flagged up as someone who's at risk of malnutrition or already malnourished and will be sort of more formally involved in terms of assessing their nutritional status. However, I think we all follow very closely patients' anthropometric measures and when they present themselves sometimes or often enough in gastroenterology, one of the presenting symptoms is weight loss. Uh, And in that case, the assessment will probably involve doing just a a way to hide, take a history about their uh, weight loss or weight gain, calculate the BMI for, you know, whatever one may think about BMI is still the measure that we use in terms of assessing someone's risk or um, developed malnutrition. Then I think more specifically in clinic, let's say we see patients who have lost weight, we would assess uh, biochemically for any deficiencies that may have developed over time. Specifically, we're looking at the uh, hematinics, we're looking at the calcium level, we're also looking to the other bone electrolytes and screen. Uh, We would look specifically at magnesium, let's say, in terms of the um, small bowel absorption function by carbonate sometime if they have really high losses with a small bowel vitamins such as vitamin D and then more specifically vitamin A and vitamin E as well which are very much linked to the function of the small bowel. Liver function tests of course because the liver will be affecting how they are responding to the nutrients or may be affected by the fact how they are actually absorbing stuff. We in a face-to-face clinic we would try and assess a little bit their functional reserve what is their mobility have they had a recent reduction in exercise tolerance or has the mobility decreased have they become more frail and if we talk about sort of more specific anthropometric measures is not something that gastroenterologists would be using in clinics sometimes the dietitians would do hand grip strength let's say in terms of functional assessment um, they would also do uh, skin folds etc And more specifically, I think over the last few years, in terms of both research and clinical assessment, we've been using measures for assessing for presence of sarcopenia, such as, let's say, using a CT scan, which doesn't have to be dedicated for nutritional assessment, but we sort of just use it as a way of seeing what our patients are doing in terms of their body composition. 
one thing that is really important as well is to, in terms of blood tests, I think lots of people rely on albumin to say, oh yeah, so-and-so has got a low albumin, therefore they're malnourished. I think it is an important, it is something that we sometimes see in patients who are malnourished, but it's not directly related to malnutrition. It is actually a consequence of being poorly. Um, so ill patients have an inability to maintain the contiguous strength of the basal membranes. They have leaky membranes and they leak fluid. And as a consequence, the albumin moves into the interstitial tissue. So that's the, res that's the result of someone being ill rather than necessarily being malnourished. And they can become ill because they are malnourished. So that's how sort of the circle closes. And I think that's probably what I would do in a very fast assessment whenever I see someone in clinic. It is obviously something that prompts us to then take a slightly more detailed history in terms of their nutritional intake. I know that lots of times we don't have enough time in clinic to do all that and to assess what are their energy and protein requirements and whether they're necessarily meeting them, but we can have a little quick assessment, I think, uh, in their respect. And I'll probably stop at that because obviously the specific assessments that we do in uh, nutrition ward rounds, when we are actually following up patients with specific nutritional needs and we are sort of treating the parental nutrition are a bit more detailed. Uh, but I can talk a bit about that later if that's still required. If you assess somebody like that and you find that they are malnourished or underweight, what you want to do is to try and fix that problem. But can you explain to me the risks of refeeding? Because that is something that we hear quite a lot about. Yeah, so refeeding syndrome is, is obviously a metabolic state when the body hasn't quite switched on all the functions that it needs to do so to be able to manage all that metabolic load that it's getting. And you're at risk of developing a refeeding syndrome whenever you haven't taken nutrition for a very long time, specifically for five days or more, when you've lost a lot of weight before then and or you've lost a lot of weight before then and you have certain conditions such as let's say alcohol excess and um, anorexia etc uh, when you're actually specifically metabolically deplete uh, and you're then starting to eat or you are given nutrition the refeeding syndrome itself is related to an instability of electrolytes uh, in the fasted state the body goes into this routine of switching off all the energy consuming mechanisms or let's say processes and one of them is obviously the sodium potassium channel and that sort of keeps the balance of sodium and potassium in the cell and there's other ones that are associated with it so in the refeeding syndrome you would generally get a quick dip in levels of potassium magnesium phosphate calcium and all the consequences that you get from that partially the responsibility for then lies with the uh, ability to actually metabolize the substrates that we're providing the body. And one of the big problems is thiamine deficiency. If we're not consuming food, we're not getting any of that. We don't have anywhere to store it. So thiamine is really, really important cofactor of pyruvate kinase, uh, which is one of the first enzymes in your Krebs cycle. And if you don't actually push the glucose through the Krebs cycle, you're losing a lot of ATP and a lot of energy. So that's how it sort of builds up. The symptoms of, apart from what you can see biochemically, and I think the most important thing is to remember to assess someone for refeeding uh, syndrome, refeeding risk. And, and in that case, you're sure to recognize any dips and any sort of beginnings of refeeding syndrome. The second more imp most important thing is if you start giving someone even just glucose or starting to resuscitate them, et cetera, et cetera. It's really important to really early on start thinking about giving them thiamine 
especially in the acute setting, I think, uh, unless there is a known allergy to Pabronix, you don't, uh, you would give patients Pabronix quite early on, I think, especially in context of previous severe weight loss or alcohol excess, I think it's important to recognize that. And any patient that is sort of confused, etc. The risks of refeeding syndrome. So what you can actually see clinically once it's developed, you would get patients retaining lots of fluid. So you get lots of edema. Uh, you can um, get electrolyte imbalances to such an extent that you get uh, arrhythmias. Uh, you can get cardiac arrest. You can get pulmonary edema, rhabdomyolysis. You can get all sorts of different muscular dysfunction, much muscular weakness, confusion, lots of things. Uh, it can be it can be deadly, obviously. So people do die of free feeding syndrome, but I think it's become a rarity. We recognize it clinically that someone is actually not maintaining that electrolyte balance really well and they're becoming a bit boggy around the edges, but um, we are quite good at recognizing it and treating it early or preventing it. And we can't always give food and fluids orally to patients that we see. So when is artificial nutritional support indicated and when is it contraindicated right so i think the question often arises when someone is admitted to hospital when should i refer this patient to let's say the nutritional support team what should i think of starting feeding them artificially or sort of involve the dietitians i think the rough rule is that you know someone who is really severely malnourished could probably survive obviously through the first 24 48 hours of fluid resuscitation treating infection if they're infected or sort of sorting out their acute cardiovascular instability etc at that stage nutrition is probably not the next best step so you need to start thinking about it but i probably wouldn't start filling someone with tpn when they've got a raging sepsis however after 48 hours or after 24 to 48 hours, if they're still severely ill and you're predicting that they're not going to be taking any nutrition in and they're currently not taking any nutrition in, then I think you should probably start thinking about either enteral nutrition or parenteral nutrition. In less acute settings or when someone is not severely malnourished, we tolerate them to being ill by mouth or not having any nutrition for up to five days or so. And that's when we start thinking about instituting additional nutritional intervention. The rough rule is that whenever you have a functioning gut, you would use the gut. And that's when we try and institute enteral nutrition. I think it's really important to understand this because it's quite easy to reach for parental nutrition. And it's not because we, as a nutrition support team, wouldn't want to put patients on PN. It is, however, very well known that patients who are on parental nutrition for long periods of time and have, let's say, intra-abdominal inflammatory processes, et cetera, such as pancreatitis, have a higher mortality rate. And that's because a lot of your immune system is being trained and, and teed up for action in the gut. And when the gut is not being fed enterally, it's actually that malt uh, system dissipates and decreases in numbers. And therefore, you're not getting the immune response you would otherwise get. In terms of contraindications to feeding, I would probably say I'll go back to what I said at the very beginning, cardiovascular instability, someone who's shocked cannot and will not be able to manage substrates. So it's going to be very diff difficult for them to metabolize stuff. Obviously, you would give them, I don't know, if you give them for fluid resuscitation, dexaline or, you know, give them a bit of dextrose if they need to be on insulin, obviously, for the sliding scale, etc. That's all fine, but um, a proper nutrition as such, you know, giving them substrates in terms of PN or enteral nutrition, probably are not necessary. That's one thing. 
other sort of uh, contraindication is then specifically for enteral nutrition, let's say, when you would start thinking of parental nutrition is when you have someone who's got a clearly obstructed gut and you can't use it. Someone who's got a really high output fistula and you don't know how to manage it and you sort of need to give them a bit of bowel rest or someone who doesn't have clearly good access you know, to their gut and you can't quite feed them the right way. There are also... I'm not really sure if this is the right forum, but sort of at the back of your mind, you should, as a gastroenterologist and as a trainee, you should always think about the ethical principles of nutrition as well. I think it is very important to be aware that we can do a lot of things in medicine. The question is, should we do them? And I think we need to take that responsibility and obviously be open about these ethical dilemmas with our patients from when it's appropriate, of course, not from the very beginning, but um, it is something we should consider uh, in all patients in whom we are considering nutritional intervention. One of the things that I guess a, a lot of trainees might see in their day-to-day work is people with stomas who come in with a high output stoma. And I guess then one of the things running around your mind is what they should and shouldn't eat to try mm. and control this. What should people with high output stomas try and avoid in their diets? So it depends very much on what setting we're talking about. So let's say you're in outpatients and you have a patient who has an ileostomy and they said, oh, I'm doing well, but I got, let's say, a stoma of about a litre to a litre and a half, which is probably borderline. I think anyone who's got a stoma output of above a litre is going to have a bit of trouble maintaining their fluid balance and possibly even air and energy balance, depending a little bit on how long their stretch of small bowel is above the stoma. Ostomy. I would probably say that um, obviously avoiding hypo or smaller fluids is really, really important. Um, whenever there's an acute exacerbation, I would advise that they increase the amount of solutes that they take with the water and not just pure water often enough. And I've heard, um, you know, some medical advice from other people. Uh, saying that, oh, you should drink more water if you've got a high output stoma, which is obviously going to drive that stoma higher in volume. Um, so they need to increase the amount of solids. We often enough suggest, oh, have crisps. You know, they're full of salt. They are nutritious in a way and, and they sort of help with uh, maintaining a lower output. I think stuff that has a little bit of fiber, but not too much of it, specifically if they have any strictures higher up, Uh, is usually beneficial again things that have lots of uh, sugar in them specifically just sugar nothing else are not terribly good but we do suggest dry sugary stuff such as let's say jelly babies or things that sort of contain glucose because glucose will absorb quite high up in the small bowel as well and in the stomach Um, in terms of uh, specific prescriptions that we can give obviously it's the uh, synox solution that we often give to these patients to substitute their hyposmolar fluids with that and obviously we increase the dose or we introduce antidiarrheal medications to slow down the transit through the small bowel and increase the ability of the bowel to uh, absorb it is however a problem when you get someone in clinic who is starting to develop uh, renal dysfunction uh, so when the creatinine uh, goes up and urea goes up obviously electrolytes are sometimes all over the place I think in that case sometimes a quick clinic intervention is possible but I would probably advise that those patients are then followed closely up in a hot clinic if that's the facility you have or an emergency ambulatory care unit uh, just to see that things have settled 
sometimes we need to admit these patients to the ward and either give them bowel rest or monitor closely how they're taking antidiarrheals. We do measure the pH of the jejunostomy, let's say, output as well, specifically higher-lying stomas can be quite acidic. And measuring the pH gives us a good gauge whether the um, acid secretion suppression is appropriate. So increasing a PPI is sometimes a good trick as well. So we do secrete about a litre and a half of gastric juices every day. And just reducing that to a minimum can improve the stoma volume to a significant extent. Beware of the levels of bicarbonate as well. Sometimes these patients actually don't absorb bicarbonate very well and they are sort of a bit deficient on that. So we do substitute some patients with bicarbonate. And I would probably say, obviously, look at the electrolyte uh, profile and just the bone profile to see where you're currently standing. In terms of parental nutrition, in anyone who's got a an output, so in terms of criteria for admission, I think that's sometimes a bit of a difficult point, isn't it? You obviously want to keep the patient out of the hospital if you can, but I would probably say if you have worsening renal dysfunction, if you're seeing that a patient is not managing, or if the volumes are sort of nearing one and a half litres, I would probably err on the side of admitting the patient, uh, giving them some IV fluids, um, maybe instituting a little bit of bowel rest so they recoup, and then starting anew. You would need to look at whether they've got a new bowel infection, maybe. Maybe that's driving the new onset diarrhea, sort of trying to find and sort of chip away at the possible reasons why this has actually happened. In someone who's got inflammatory bowel disease, have they got a recurrence in the ileum above the stoma? Uh, have they maybe got an obstruction if there's clearly a, like a, a rhythm to it when they sort of have a buildup of not opening their bowels with anything and they have a large output over the following day? There may be adhesions. So I would probably say just think about the possible causes. It's a little bit like a resuscitation uh, call, so a met call, but obviously not as acute. <laughs> Yeah, so you touched on inflammatory bowel disease there. The other condition mentioned in the curriculum that all these trainees listening will need yes. to know is chronic liver disease and the role of yeah. nutrition in that. Could you briefly summarise the main things that people should know about managing nutrition in chronic liver disease? I would think the first thing you need to do is recognise that patients with chronic liver disease, like any other patients with chronic uh, non-infectious diseases, have a degree of inflammation in the body. And the inflammation in your body is something that drives catabolism and they will be losing their muscle through that. But also because of the inability of the liver to store glycogen overnight, you are going to switch all the gluconeogenesis processes around two, three o'clock in the morning. So I think we just need to realize that it's going to be a really, really severe catabolic state Compared, let's say, to COPD, when you have inflammation and that drives catabolism, you now also have a dysfunctional liver that is not going to be storing the nutrients as you should do, and it's going to actually work against this patient's lean body mass. Another thing you need to be aware of is that the worse the nutrition in patients with chronic liver disease, the worse the complications of liver disease. And that's been quite clearly proven in lots of studies before that, you know, your muscle mass goes like that, your ascites goes like that. So in terms of patients who are, are have end-stage liver disease and they're progressively more burdened by ascites and other complications, nutrition is one of the things that you need to look at as well. And there's a close interplay between the two because not only they have this really weird metabolic state, on the other hand side, they're also less likely to be eating properly because of the 
complications of cirrhosis, driving anorexia on one hand side and the other hand side, they, ha they have also a full tummy of, of fasciitis and often enough, they don't have a really good appetite. So when you see them in clinic, be just aware of the fact that they will be slowly developing malnutrition. It is very difficult to, to recognize that early on, especially in patients with NAFLD, when you may have actually in front of yourself someone who's clearly overweight and they've got a lot of subcutaneous and intra-abdominal fat, but on the, you know, on the sort of silent part of their disease, they're slowly losing their muscle mass. It has been proven in studies that patients with end-stage liver disease who are also sarcopenic have a worse survival on the waiting list for a liver transplant. So we do need to act early. And I think it's just that thought about them being at risk of developing malnutrition, doing the weights, doing the heights, assessing their, if you can, if you sort of can sort of gauge a little bit how much ascites they've got, assess their dry weight and try and engage dietitians really early on. The one thing that you can tell them in clinic that you can coach them on is about the fact that they need to eat regularly, that they need to maintain their protein intake. So the, the old recommendations about low protein intake in patients with hepatic encephalopathy do not apply any longer. And they would need to maintain the metabolism throughout the day and early stages of the night by eating a carbohydrate meal, let's say late at night, about 10, 11 o'clock just before they go to sleep. And that will, so it needs to be a slow burning carbohydrate, small dose, and then that's probably going to help them. When they start losing weight or when they've got ascites, I think when they're function, in functional decline, they need to have a dietetic assessment early. And if needed, they need to have nutritional supplements early. I think, you know, and that's all about the obviously nutrition in terms of entry support. When we're talking about um, oral support, when we're talking about acutely admitted patients with acute decompensation or acute or chronic liver disease, or let's say alcoholic hepatitis, again, in those conditions, it has been shown that nutrition is one of the, well, obviously, apart from looking for sepsis and renal failure and bleeding, et cetera, and, and sorting those out first, nutrition is the next one you need to um, pay attention to and early nutrition is something that is going to improve their outlook and especially recovery after they've you know they've gone through the acute phase of acute and chronic liver failure so i think yeah in my view i, I see that generally just being aware of the problem lots of the times spurs on the actions that are needed but i would probably say if i can summarize uh, it's the evening snack at home. It's pay attention to good protein, carbohydrate intake. And then when they're acutely um, well and admitted to hospital, make sure that you pay attention to nutrition. If someone is, let's say, encephalopathic, then obviously they need tube feeding and just be persistent and try and get the feed into them. Thank you. That is, that is such a helpful summary. And um, the very last thing I want to ask you is if you were a gastro trainee again, what is the one thing you wish somebody had told you? I would probably say that when I was a trainee, I didn't have around myself consultants who would be very much bothered with metabolism. But I would probably say if someone told me, just connect that knowledge that you have about metabolism and about the biochemical processes that go on in your body and in your liver specifically, and try and connect those with the patient as they're standing in front of you. That would, would have probably helped me on quite a lot. I had to come to those conclusions um, the hard way, I'd probably say. 
and in terms of nutrition, I think is uh, it's, it's just one thing that I see regularly that sort of crops up, I think, in discussions with juniors is just think about the gut as a, a functioning entity. It's got an entrance. It's got an exit. There's lots of different bits going on in the interim, but try and think about it a little bit mechanistically, if that makes sense. It doesn't always work like that. Obviously, the gut is very difficult to measure. And I think compared to our cardiology colleagues, we don't have many things that we can measure in how the gut functions. But when you're trying to access the gut for, let's say, nutritional intervention, when you're thinking about what tube I should put into this patient, should I be doing any tests for motility? Should I be doing any transit studies? Should I be doing an MRI? Just try and think how you're going to get things from A to Z, how you're going to get them through that and absorbed into the bloodstream and then used by the liver. And I think if you try and sort of sort it down that that way it's much easier to recognize what you should be what your next actions should be because i can't give a blanket <laughs> advice in terms of what you should be doing in any different situation but try and analyze what is actually going wrong and in terms of nutrition the one thing that is really important the closer to the mouth that you can feed the better hugely informative and helpful teaching there from dr Melier. once again We wholeheartedly encourage you to share the information about this podcast series to as many of your gastro colleagues as possible to spread this great teaching far and wide that we've been only able to enjoy thanks to each of these consultants giving of their time. If you'd like to let us know what you thought of the episode or have questions you'd like us to touch on in the future, please email medregnews at gmail.com or give us a follow on Twitter at medregnews. Next up, when we come back for episode three of Gastro News, we'll be exploring what we do with patients who present with high output stomas. Not an uncommon presentation at all, and one it's important that we're ready for in a clinical setting. So don't miss it. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you'll be back to join us for episode three very soon. Music